Hi, welcome to today's episode of Epic Conversations. This podcast is a series of conversations about the issues related to parents and carers living with teenagers in crisis. I'm Madeline, one of the founding directors of Empowering Parents in Crisis, otherwise known as EPIC. And I'm Roberta. I'm a regular member of this amazing parent peer support group. EPIC understands that it's not always possible to get to a peer support meeting or a counselling session, and we want this podcast to be a source of information that parents and carers can tap into when they need it. EPIC acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land on which we record this podcast today and pays respect to Elders past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening to this EPIC conversation. While all of the EPIC podcast topics are challenging, today we are discussing topics that are really concerning. Self-harm and suicide ideation are often the greatest worries parents have for their teenagers. According to research conducted by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, suicide and self-inflicted injuries are the leading disease burden for males aged 15 to 19 years of age and the fourth highest for females of the same age. We have invited Stephen Gamble from Man Anchor to join today's discussion to shed some light on this topic. Man Anchor is a Northern Beaches-based organisation that aims to help people have a simple conversation that could save someone's life. Hi, Steve. Thanks for joining EPIC today. Thank you, Roberta. It's wonderful to be here with you both. So EPIC wants to remove stigma around families in crisis. Can you please tell us about Man Anchor and the stigmas that you are trying to address? Yeah, so Man Anchor is an organisation that I founded back in May of 2017 with a with the hope of being able to empower men originally with the tools to be able to support themselves, but also be able to support the people around them. Um, but over the years, we've turned into an organisation that actually works with more females now uh, than we do males. Um, our youngest participant is the age of eight and our most senior participant, which is a bit of a guess, but I'm guessing in their mid-90s, around 95, I'll call it. So we have a wide demographic of participants from all over our beautiful country, from you know, metro areas to regional areas. Um, and, you know, Manic was started because of my own, um, you know, my own, what's the word? My own inability to be able to support someone through times of crisis and illness. And um, I wanted to have the tools and I didn't want anyone else to be in the same position I was in. So now our role at Manic is to really build that literacy level, which has a positive effect on knocking down stigma and negative attitudes associated with mental health. We've got a saying here at Mananka, health is health, and that um, it doesn't matter regardless of physical health or mental health. If someone needs support, if someone is unwell, um, you know, we need to lean in and we need to be able to create support. And with health is health and that mantra, I find it really helps to, you know, um, normalise health problems, including mental health problems. I love that health is health. It's um, it's it's important. It's one of the one of the big takeouts I think that I've learned from you. Um, so you're very passionate passionate about helping, and that comes across in your presentations. What do you love most about Man Anchor? Oh God, I think I'm the luckiest guy alive. I really do. I every day I get to support individuals. 
growing and understanding how they can support other people. Um, but, you know, what I also do is I can create opportunity with the education programs that we do that we, as I said earlier, that we normalise mental health. And for a lot of people to come and do our programs, they may have had lived experience of either um, their lived experience of supporting uh, a family member or a friend or a colleague or the, the lived experience of their own mental health challenges. And I'll never forget, only a few few weeks ago, I was sitting on the couch eating popcorn and the whole family was out and I was watching my, my murder mystery shows and a phone my phone rang and it was a guy that um, was from a workshop I ran um, on the South Coast maybe a month before. And he said to me, Steve, I'm sorry to ring you on a Sunday evening, but I just wanted to thank you because, you know, I walked out of that workshop feeling normal for the first time in my whole life, feeling like I didn't have to have excuses for, you know, the person I am and, and the challenges that I have. And for me, being able to do that is the most wonderful thing. And I look, I'm not your, I'm not your average facilitator when it comes to um, mental health. There's a lot more clinical people out there. But I want people to be able to lean in and feel empowered to be able to use the tools. Um, and so if I can make people feel comfortable with talking about it and, and living through it, well, I think that's a pretty cool job to have, isn't it? Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. Just to normalise the the mental health and to have it as part of the conversation at the table anytime. Um, so in your experience, when do parents or carers usually become aware of their teenagers' mental health struggles? Yeah, well, look, for, for, for most of us, it's when we start to notice behavioural changes. But if we look at mental health on, on a wider spectrum, what is a mental health problem? Mental health problem is um, when you start to notice subtle or major changes in someone's thoughts, feelings, physical well-being, or behaviours that start to impact the, the way that that individual gets on with life. Okay, it starts to impact the way that that person holds meaningful relationships and communicates with friends and family. So for a lot of young people, it's those behavioural shifts and those emotional shifts that we start to see, depending on what the disorder is. Um, and, you know, when we look at when we look at um, uh, adolescence, you know, the medium age and onset for anxiety is around 15 eating disorders around 80, um, 18, um, and, and depression's in that early 20 mark. But, you know, there's a lot of people that experience it earlier on in life. So, you know, depending on the disorder, it's that shift where we start to see um, the individual stop doing those things they usually love doing, stop communicating the way that they usually communicate. And for most parents, that's the first indication that something's going on. So based on those indications is it possible to identify what drives a young person to contemplate self-harm or suicide okay well look when it comes to suicide and uh, non-suicidal self-injury they are not mental health problems they're crises associated with mental health problems so usually there's a over there's an overarching mental health problem that is bringing that emotional distress to that individual for them to um, either contemplate or have those suicidal thoughts or carry out non-suicidal self-injury. So usually there is that underlying mental health problem which we need to address. So, um, so self-harm or um, non-suicidal self-injury, would that be the first sign that a teenager might be considering suicide or are they connected or unrelated? 
Um, they, 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 they're connected, but they don't go hand in hand every time. So non-suicidal non -suicidal, self-injury is a maladaptive coping mechanism that we see in a lot of young people. Um, young people have limited coping strategies. So to cope with um, to cope with emotional distress, yeah, um, unfortunately, non-suicidal self-injury becomes a way of relieving that emotional pain. Okay, um, and then we have suicidal thoughts, which is with 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 the overwhelming pain and distress that a young person or an adult might feel, where they feel they can't cope with life as it is. Um, now, you know, in some cases, in some cases. Um, non-suicidal self-injury can be a, pre, a precursor to someone taking further steps to cross that line and attempt suicide, or it can be um, it can be a protective factor where um, someone participates in non-suicidal self-injury to support themselves not going down that route of having thoughts of suicide or acting on suicidal thoughts. So they, you know, it becomes definitely a risk factor. And if I was to be supporting a young person participating in non-suicidal self-injury, I would definitely ask the suicide question just so that we can, you know, be assured that this is not the case. Um, and if we do it with, with empathy, without judgment, often we'll get, you know, we'll get the honest answer. So, yeah, it, it can be sometimes a, a risk factor, but also it can be a bit of a protective factor as well. So that leads nicely into the next question, which is about, having a conversation, you've just said, ask the question directly. You know, if a parent is concerned about their teenager in relation to self-harm or suicide, how can they approach this conversation? Yeah, look, it's it's probably the most difficult conversation that you'll ever have in your life. And and um, I, I, I can't even count how many parents that I've had come through our workshops and share their experience of having to have those bigger conversations. The first thing I'm gonna say, if anyone's listening to this podcast, and they have done things differently. You don't know what you don't know, okay? Um, it, we're, we're all learning, and sometimes a little bit of education can go a long, long way. Um, one of the things that I would do is, first of all, check yourself, okay? If you've got feelings um, that, if you've got a, a feeling in your gut that something might be going on or you're seeing signs that something's going on, first thing what I do would be check yourself, make sure that you have your own emotions, in check because what we want to do is lean into this conversation provide a safe space for the young person we're supporting and allow them to feel comfortable and connected with us if we go in like a bull out of a gate you know all we're going to do is create um create barriers um we're going to push people away but if we can come in calm collected with with understanding with empathy without judgment and and if we can come in um with keeping the young person's feelings um, and emotions um, at front of our mind, you know, that sets the conversation up really, really well. First thing I would do is identify if the person is having thoughts of suicide or is participating in non-suicidal self-injury. And how do we do that? We ask it in a clear, unambiguous, direct way. Uh, it, the question could be, hi, Steve, um, I'm, I'm concerned that Oh, sorry. Hi, Steve. I'm, I'm wondering if you're having thoughts of suicide. Steve, are you having thoughts of suicide? You know, clear, unambiguous. There's no, um, there's no judgment in those questions. Um, like, you're not thinking about doing something silly, are you? You haven't done something silly like harm yourself, have you? Um, there's absolutely no judgment. It's straight, direct. 
Are we talking about suicide here? Steve, I've been seeing this, this and this. I'm concerned. Are you having thoughts of suicide? Have you been participating in non-suicidal self-injury? Are you thinking about harming yourself as in non-suicidal self-injury? I think that's the clearest way we can do it. Straight, direct, unambiguous. It seems rough. It seems straight to the point. But when we're talking about big situations like this, it's better that we are direct. If we are direct and we're not you know, we're not wishy-washy around it, what we do is we get an opportunity and say, hey, I'm, I'm ready to talk about this and, and I'm sharing this with you right now. So I'd really love you to, to share your feelings and emotions with me. Um, one of the things that I would do is, is be open to the understanding that, you know, um, that a person who's participating in non-suicidal self-injury or having thoughts of suicide can, can feel that they, you know, they can sit with a lot of guilt for having those thoughts and feelings. So if we're able to, if we're able to, you know, really um, remove that judgment and sit with that empathy, it can make a big, big difference how we build connection. You know, what's the, um, you know, having thoughts is really, really, having thoughts of suicide is really, really common, but we don't need to act on them. Okay, so how can I? best support you now and that probably leads on to how do we support the young person you know you know what we need to do is look at ways of um, delaying and distracting there's a wonderful saying that we use the three d's delay distract decide to do something something different um, the three days are a wonderful way that we can implement coping strategies and and you know really deregulate that that those thoughts around having thoughts of non-suicidal self-injury or those thoughts around um, 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 suicide. You know, on average, are anywhere between five to 10 minutes, that urge to harm themselves, um, we find is, is that kind of key area. So if we can delay, distract, decide to do something different with the young person in our world, um, well, that, that can relieve them from that urge to harm themselves. It can you know, put that breaker into that, that thought process of, um, of suicide just for that moment, provide a little bit of clarity and it helps us build connection because we're, we're working together. You know, one of the things I'd ask is like, what can we do together to help you and support you right now? What have you done in the past that you think would be helpful right now and we can do it together? Now, if we can lean in and ask questions like that, I think it's really, really helpful. I had a wonderful mother. She had three teenage sons and we spoke about the three Ds. And she said, you know what, Steve, you know what I do? I've got a fruit bowl on the end of our um, bench top in the kitchen. And in that bench top, we have it full of, uh, in that fruit bowl, we have it full of coconuts. Coconuts, okay, where are we going here? She said, and in the backyard, we have a hammer. If any of my boys are really overwhelmed or distressed, I say to them, go get yourself a coconut. They go into the kitchen, they pick up a coconut, they walk out in the backyard, pick up a hammer and they smash the coconut. I don't know how much coconuts cost, but it may be an option. It may be an option. That's awesome. Three, I really, the, the three Ds is fabulous. Can I just, I've got it right, delay, decide, distract? Um, delay, distract, decide to do something different. Okay, decide to do something different. Yeah, that's fabulous. Thank you. So because a lot of parents would just think that talking about things would make it worse, but it sounds like if you've got a few strategies about how to start the conversation, um, you're well on your way. So what would you say about talking about it that could make things worse? God, I, th I think if, if you throw, if you come in and you show disgust 
or you show judgment. You know, I, it'd be really difficult to walk into a room, uh, a child's bedroom, and see that they're, they're participating in non-suicidal self-injury or pick up, you know, a workbook with uh, or a diary with, with talks of uh, talking about and thoughts about suicide. But if we go in too hard, um, what we're going to do is create a barrier between us. If we can, if we can come in softly, um, try to understand the pain that the young person is feeling, it helps build connection. So when that young person is feeling that way, they feel more proactive in in reaching out to mum, dad, carer, or that support network that they have. You know, I, I think it's all about how you how you come into the conversation, how you set the conversation up. How you check your own emotions is really, really key. God, I'm a dad of three boys, got two 10-year-old boys, and I'm not bloody perfect. You know, if I if I if I see them kick a ball and it, and it smashes a window in the house, you know, I say, oh, I have to really check myself. But sometimes I do a great job of it, sometimes I don't. You know, we can we can do do-overs and we can re we can come back, but if we can be mindful, stop, take a deep breath, take that minute of mindfulness. And then continue on. It really does help because really the core, um, the call that we want to be able to do is build connection with the young person. So their support network is there. So they have the ability to reach out and feel that they they have that safety. So when those thoughts and feelings of of, of harming themselves or those thoughts and feelings of um, suicide come to that come to them, you know, if they think, hey, I can turn to this person because I know they're not going to be upset with me. I know they're not going to judge me. I know that they're going to hear me. You know, God, that sets it up for a hell of a lot better, um, a hell of a lot better place than than that person being alone. Yeah, connections are really important. It doesn't just have to be parents. It can be teachers, friends, yeah. other family members. I think it's really, yeah, it's really important that young people know that, you know, there are people out there and they need to identify who they are. So you've, you've given us lots of really great ideas and recommendations for the families on how to support, how to have conversations, but how does Man Anchor or are there any other tips you have for the families supporting themselves and the parents supporting themselves through this really challenging time? Uh, look, education, psychoeducation is really, really important, you know, um, depending on whatever the mental illness is, being able to understand the mental illness and, and, and ways that you can support that young person with adaptive coping strategies is really important. So, you know, even yesterday I was talking to a parent where um, they've built a relationship um, with the young person in their world that, you know, every three or four sessions they go in and sit with, um, with the psychologist and the young person and kind of bounce off kind of things that they've, they've learned. And, and so they can be there to check in. You know, that's not ideal for every situation, but to be able to have a, a literacy level around the disorder that the young person is going through, being able to work through safety plans with the young person and understand those coping strategies, also understanding those subtle or major signs that something may be going um, left to center and the person may be becoming unwell, especially with things like psychosis, which we see a lot of young people um, living with, but um, you know, often getting misdiagnosed or not picked up on. You know, anxiety and depression sometimes are a little bit easier to see, but little things like psychosis um, um, uh, can be a little bit harder for parents to identify. So, having a better understanding, building your internal literacy level um, around. 
the different disorders that are out there, the disorder that the young person that you're living with is um, navigating and adaptive coping strategies. I think that's the best thing you can do. Each of the different disorders has a wide range of resources out there, depending on what area you live in. I would really, I'd really just jump on um, a Google search um, and, and find what's in your local area and be aware of it. You know, here on the Northern Beaches where I live, um, we, we've got wonderful resources um, with um, Avalon Youth Hub, Headspace. Um, we have uh, Burdekin as well. So we've got we've got a wide range of youth programs here um, that can support. But, you know, just developing a really strong understanding uh, for yourself can remove some of that fear so that we can lean in a little bit more. And, you know, sometimes parents just need that little bit of education as well just so they can be present. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's really important. Just make arming yourself with information is um, sometimes takes out the a level of stress, I suppose, if you can look at it from a non-judgmental point of view. Um, okay, so we've covered a lot today, and I'm sure that there are questions that you'd, that you'd wish we'd asked. Is there anything else that you'd like parents of carers of teens to know? Just to know that we, the sooner that we pick up something in a young person, the sooner we can get them help and the sooner they'll be well again. You know, for most Australians, you know, um, mental health problems are only a short period um, of their life. Um, and then with treatment and support, they can go on and live really healthy and happy um, lives. I, when I, I, like to, I like to use the analogy of health as health because it helps us bring back to physical health where we have prevention, early intervention and treatment. And if we were to think about physical health, if we were able to identify um, ways that we could support ourselves and our family, preventative stuff, boom, we're already ahead of the game. Early intervention by identifying those early signs and symptoms and then acting on them um, in, in, in a timely manner, what it does, it reduces the severity of the illness, it reduces the time of treatment and the density of treatment, and it reduces the time between that young person being unwell and being well again. And I think that's really important. And sometimes we sit back and we wait, well, maybe it's a stage, but if we can build that proactive approach um, with, you know, and that empathetic approach to the young person's problems in living, you know, what we do is create an opportunity where that person will be well sooner. And, you know, as a parent, that's what I want. So, yeah, prevention, early intervention, treatment. Think of, think of mental health like a hamstring. If we had a bad hamstring and we kept running on it or letting the young person run on it, it's only going to get worse. But if we get them in to see their physio or their psychologist, the sooner they're going to be well again. So I think that's a, a simple analogy we can do is, but don't forget health is health. That's a, a great mantra. Thank you, Steve. And, and thanks for creating Man Anchor. It's an amazing organisation and the passion that you have is really incredible and we appreciate the support. The EPIC team has participated in your Communicating with Care course and most of us have done the Youth Mental Health First Aid training as well, which is great for us and great for the skills that we can pass on to other parents that we meet through our peer support journey. So we're really grateful for that and thank you for your support of teens and, and their families. Well, I'm here if anyone needs support. Um, I'm, they call me Mental Health Santa Claus. So if anyone needs any help from Mental Health Santa Claus, well, the kids do anyway, um, I'll be here to support the EPIC team 
and everyone in the EPIC community. Thanks for listening. A transcript of this conversation can be found on the EPIC website at www.empoweringparentsincrisis.com. If you have any questions or suggestions, we would love to hear from you. You can contact us via the links on the website or Facebook, Instagram or LinkedIn. Thank you to West Fund Health Insurance for funding this podcast series. Mm-hmm.